be with you. Let's turn and greet one another. We welcome you to Laguna Presbyterian Church, especially if you're visiting here. We're very glad that you're here with us today. There is a friendship pad that's right next to the center aisle in each row, and we'd love to have you take it and fill it out and pass it down the row. We'd like to know that you're here whether you're visiting or whether you're a regular here. Inside the connections, inside the bulletin there is a connections, which is our announcement sheet. And you'll see that after this service, our nurses are taking blood pressures in the room that's just right off to the side in the prayer room. You're welcome to stop by there at the end of the service on your way out to the Molokai Bake Sale. So before you buy all the goodies at the Molokai Bake Sale, in order to uh, help support our teenagers who are going on a mission trip at Easter time, you can have your blood pressure taken and then go eat all that good stuff that's out there. Um, also, our deacons tomorrow night are having a unique program. We have Dr. John Fry from St. Andrews coming to speak to us about divorce recovery. He, he runs the divorce recovery workshop there, and he's about to start another session of that. And we asked him to come and talk to us about uh, caring for people in the congregation as they go through divorce. If that's something that might be relevant to you, you'd be very welcome to come and join our deacons at 7 o'clock tomorrow night to hear John Fry. Or, or maybe it's something you'd like to hear him and see if you would even like to or benefit by being part of his workshop that's up at St. Andrews starting sometime in February. So you're all welcome to be part of that. Third Friday Clippers this month has an evening of song with, with Jeff McCrory, and everyone is welcome to that. It's a potluck, so you do need to sign up just to let us know what you're bringing. And we have a ladies' spring brunch on March 1st. It will be at 10 o'clock in Tankersley Hall. Our program is featuring one of the young women in our presbytery, Allison Becker, who is going to be doing a, a program about the journey up the Lenten road to joy. We will be in Lent by then. Don't worry, it's not a fasting meal. You will have really good food. But she's going to be helping us focus on the journey of Lent through art and through dance and through a number of things. Uh, Lent does begin 10 days from today, Ash Wednesday, February 18th. And we will have a service here at 7 p.m. You're all welcome to be there. We also this week have a Red Cross blood drive. And if you have a, a child that you are sponsoring at the Tumaini Children's Home in Kenya, Ken Cornelison is going there in March. Ken, wave your hand. Everybody knows who Ken is if you have a sponsored child. You're not going, but he has a way. You are going. Yes, you're going. He has a way to get a letter to your sponsored child. So 
that's the person you need to see if you have a sponsored child and you want to get a letter. Jen Sweet, I think you have something to say to us. Where are you? There you are. Good morning. Um, I'm Jennifer Sweet, and I'm here to invite all the ladies of our church to our annual women's retreat at the Mary and Joseph Center in Palos Verdes. We have a fabulous speaker, Patty Pierce, coming. We have great music, small group discussions, funny skits and games planned. The food is always good, and there's plenty of time to spend with God and with friends. I have now been to several of our women's retreats, and I always have fun and come home with a refreshed and renewed spirit but I was not always this enthusiastic about women's retreats. I have to admit, I was a bit of a retreatophobic. I was a bit skeptical at what goes on on those things. I conjured up all kinds of crazy images. I wondered if there would be a lot of touchy-feely stuff, which is really not my thing. I wondered if I would have to spend hours in silent prayer or share my deepest thoughts in a small group or even worse, in front of the whole group. Not going to happen. There were too many unknowns, and I used any excuse I could to not go. Here are a few. My kids are too little. Dad can't handle it. They would miss me too much. Sorry. I'm too busy. I can't possibly take time away. I can't miss my kids' baseball games. They would be devastated if I wasn't there. I'm too tired when I get home. It will ruin the rest of my week. Well, one year, a good friend of mine invited me to go to the women's retreat. She offered to be my roommate. I was out of excuses. I decided to attend, and I realized a few things. My husband can actually take care of my kids. <laughs> he does a pretty good job, and the boys had some great memories with their weekends with their dad. I realized that taking time away from busyness to refresh my relationship with with God did more for my soul and spirit than running around trying to keep up with my crazy schedule. I even asked my boys if they remember the baseball games I missed when I was gone, and they don't. I realized that staying up late, talking and laughing with my girlfriends was well worth it because my friendships with them are even stronger. If you are a bit of a retreatophobic like I was, I want to challenge you to step out of your comfort zone and join us March 13th through the 15th for a wonderful women's retreat. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> Jen is chairing our women's retreat this year, so you can tell it's going to be a great time. And we want to wish happy 88th birthday to Andy Pete, who we're celebrating with the flowers this morning. 88 years. He'll be in second service. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. You are the God who is direct and clear with us and for us. You have committed yourself to us. You have said yes to us in creation, yes to us in our birth, yes to us in our baptism, yes to us in our awakening this day. But we are of another kind, more accustomed to perhaps, maybe, we'll see left in wonderment and ambiguity. We live our lives not back to your yes, but out of our endless perhaps. And so we pray for your mercy this day, that we may live yes back to you, yes with our time, yes with our strength and our weakness, yes to our neighbor, 
yes and no longer, perhaps. In the name of your enfleshed, yes to us, even Jesus our Lord. Amen. Join me in our call to worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord our God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Therefore, observe diligently the commandment, the statutes, and the ordinances that I am commanding you today. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. So, church, let us stand and worship God together.
to confession is from Exodus chapter 20. Hear now God's law. As God's forgiven people, how are we to live? God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol 
whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Lord, search us, search me, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Create in me, O Lord, a new heart after yours, after yours. And so, church, let's sing this Psalm 51 refrain. Gracious God, you have given us the law of Moses and the teachings of Jesus to direct us in the way of life. Yet we confess that the ways of death have a strong attraction, and we often succumb to their lure. We confess that we have elevated the things of this world above you. We have made idols of possessions and people and used your name for causes that are not consistent with you and your purposes. We have, we have permitted our schedules to come first and have not taken the time to worship you. We have not always honored those who guided us in life. We have participated in systems that take life instead of give it. We have been unfaithful in our covenant relationships. We have Yet we have and sometimes taken that which is not ours, and we have misrepresented others' intentions. Have mercy on us as we confess to you in the silence.
The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Amen. Talk in your word when I need a friend. 
scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime. Thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. And if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. By the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life in the spirit, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At least to some people in our office, I am known as the comma police. It is all Miss Hirschberger's fault, you know. When I was in high school, I insisted on taking shorthand. Now, shorthand was not usually offered to students who were um, pre-college, but I really worked at it and managed to get permission to take it because I thought it would be important for me to be able to know shorthand so that I could take notes when I was in college. Uh, that was before laptops, so none of us had laptops, boys, in case you think that that's very strange, that we don't have laptops to take notes on. Miss Hirschberger was a tiny woman. She seemed very old. She was probably about 50 or so. <laughs> and she was no nonsense. We were convinced that she was quite the tyrant. I doubt that any students ever named her as their favorite teacher or ever went back to thank her. But we should have. Because what I learned in her class is some of what I remember the best from high school. It wasn't shorthand that I learned. It was what she taught us about punctuation. You see, she would dictate to us in our very rudimentary shorthand uh, vocabulary that we had learned, she would dictate some sentences to us, and we had to try to write them down in shorthand. And then came the truth. We had to each stand and read aloud to the whole class what we had on our paper, translate it from the shorthand. And not just the words, we had to also read the punctuation and tell why each piece of punctuation was there. It went something like this. Capital beginning of sentence. Ladies, comma, noun of direct address. Don't miss our upcoming brunch with presenter, comma, apposition. Capital proper noun, Allison. Capital proper noun, Becker, period, end of sentence. It took a long time to get it all read to her. And you can believe that we did our homework because we were terrified of not being able to stand and do that right. And Miss Hirschberger made it very uncomfortable if you couldn't do it. The reason I remember the punctuation is all those times of doing it because I learned it out of fear. And yet, 
what we just hated learning at the time, has become so much internalized in me that I punctuate about as easily as I breathe. It just seems completely natural to me to do it. Unfortunately, the shorthand does not. So the law that we hated turned out to be a good thing and actually gave me tools that I have used for all of the rest of my life in each of the things that I have done. The Boy Scouts have a law. You pledge that you will follow the Boy Scout law, don't you? I, will, I checked with Tom Faye to see if I have it right. You can check to see if I've got it. Is this it? A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Is it right? Ah, good, very good. The internet proved well, it served me well there as well as Tom Fay. The intent is not just that you will learn the words and be able to say them. Do you know how to say them, by the way? Have you learned them? You know how to do that? Not just that you'll be able to do that, but the qualities it's talking about will be internalized in you so that as you grow up, you will be people who really do do those things. So it will change your life and will become part of your life. Some people, whether they are people who usually go to church or not, think that church is actually about restrictive, outdated rules. I must confess that I grew up in a church that was like that. There were lots of rules. One of the rules, of course, was that we, shouldn't, we couldn't drink, we couldn't dance. In some churches, they couldn't go to movies or they couldn't play cards or they couldn't wear certain clothes. And certainly, there were many more rules about women, what women could and couldn't do, but we won't go there. Being a Christian in my church, at least, was more about no than it was about yes. In fact, I think that they cared more about, at least they talked more about, the human rules that they had made and sort of baptized as being what God thought. They cared more about those, I think, than about what Jesus talked about, and certainly we didn't hear much about loving other people or loving God as much as we heard about the rules and about following the rules. Are laws good? Those of us who were young in the 60s were pretty convinced that they weren't, weren't we? We much preferred, if it feels good, do it. And those of us who were rather anti-establishment at the time have now become the establishment, and we are the ones who are making the laws. So it's rather amazing. Should there be a law, for instance, requiring vaccinations to go to school? Should there be a law requiring you to have health care insurance? A law about tree height, or is it okay for your neighbor to block your view? Should there be a law about what color you can paint your house, as there is in Irvine? Should there be water restriction laws during a drought? And what about laws against abortion, euthanasia, and human trafficking? Or should there be an international law against burning people alive? Are laws good? When Paul writes here about the law, he isn't writing about human restrictions. He is writing about God's law. 
particularly the law of Moses. After God had rescued his people from Egypt, he gave them the law at Mount Sinai. We know about the giving of the Ten Commandments. And it was the law that defined Israel as a people, that made them unique among the nations. Now, it's not that other nations didn't have laws. The oldest law code was the Code of Hammurabi. You can actually see the original of that in the Louvre in Paris. It's written in steel. So laws already existed. But the law of Israel defined the way they would live that was different, including what they would dress, how they would dress, and what they would eat, and how they would observe Sabbath. The law was what marked the, the covenant people of God in those days. The law of Israel defined them. Paul was steeped in the law. He loved the law. He had been a Pharisee, a Jewish legalist, someone who cared so much about not breaking the law. In his day, there were actually 613 commandments. They got so many extra because of the concern of not accidentally breaking the law. So additional laws would be made by the rabbis to help you to keep the Ten Commandments. So for example, uh, uh, about keeping the Sabbath and not working on the Sabbath, a number of laws grew up around that to make sure that you wouldn't accidentally make a mistake. Uh, some of those laws are still observed. When we were on our trip to Israel, we were in a hotel on the Sabbath. And one of the laws is that you cannot turn on a light on the Sabbath, nor can you push an elevator button. The reason is because you're not supposed to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And the way electricity works, either of those things would be kindling a fire. So the elevators in a hotel in Israel on the Sabbath, thank goodness not every day, stop on every floor and the door opens. And then you can get in or go out. You don't have to push any buttons. Next floor, it takes forever to get to breakfast, let me just say. But it is a way to guard the law and to help you not to disobey it. Paul lived with that kind of law. And he said the law was good, that the law was sweet. He had grown to treasure it, and his life had been shaped by it. He said that he was blameless according to the law, so we can assume that he kept it pretty much. At least he felt he had. Since Paul has been writing in chapter 6 of Romans about two ways of life, life identified with Adam or life that has died and is risen with Christ, we would think that he would now tell us the way to live in Christ the, the guideline for Christian ethics would be the law. He loved it so much, why didn't he go there? But instead, he surprises us and tells us that the law is part of the problem rather than being the solution to the human condition. Something had happened in Paul's life with, in his relationship to the law. When he met Christ, he realized that the law had been a good teacher but rather than being a blessing to him, it had become a curse. Eugene Peterson translated the passage that I read like this in his translation, The Message. We were doing whatever we felt we could get away with. Sounds like the 60s. Sin was ca calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. 
And this made us all the more rebellious. So what's wrong with the law? Well, ever since you've been two years old, you've known how to say no, haven't you? All you have to do is tell a two-year-old not to go in the street, and where will they go? God told Adam and Eve not to eat from that tree. So, of course, that's the tree they wanted to eat from. Because that's what happens, isn't it, when there's a law? There's a part of us that says, yeah, right. Let's see how much I can get away with. So the law, any kind of law, but particularly the law of God, can energize disobedience when it's intended to energize obedience. The problem with the law isn't that the law is bad. It's about how we react to it. The second problem with the law, even if you get past the rebellion part, if you are really a keeper of the law, is that it can become obedience to obedience, obeying for the sake of perfectly keeping every letter of the law. If your perfectionist tendencies kick in, you can so get lost in the details of keeping the law that you completely lose sight of the God who is the one who gave the law and any kind of relationship with him. It can become about externals. Or obeying the law can be all about being self-righteous against all those other people who don't keep it as well as you. It works that way with commas, and I imagine it works that way with a few other things. But all of those things are not the law's fault. The fault is the way that we react to it. The fault is actually sin's fault, not the law's. That's what the problem is. Sin was calling the shots in the way Peterson translated it. The biggest problem with the law is that it's not able to save us. It's not what it was ever intended for. When God rescued his people from Egypt, he did not say to them, Here's my law, and if you keep it perfectly for a year or two, I will set you free from this place. Rather, he had already set them free and then gave them the law and said, this is the way that you are, live, are to live now that you are a free people. The law didn't lift them, and it doesn't lift us out of the mess. It just tells us that we're in a mess. In the, in the same message translation, of another part of this passage, Peterson says, when Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print. We're alive to live a new life in the freedom of God. Jesus himself had fulfilled the law. He obeyed it. He didn't have all of these responses that we tend to have. So if by faith you are identified with Jesus, with his death and his resurrection, Paul says you've also died to the law, alive now to a whole new world of not seeing the world as being justified by the law. So God's family, which once was defined by those who kept the law, is now defined by those instead who love the Messiah and are following him. So if the law is good, but if the law is part of the problem, what are we supposed to do with it? What do you do with the Old Testament law, particularly the Ten Commandments? Do you just say, 
thank God I'm free of it? Do you ignore it? What do you do? Christians have puzzled about that for many years. John Calvin came to the conclusion uh, that there were at least three ways that he was going to see the law and that he thought that we could too. The first is that the law is like a mirror. He says that shows you your dirty face. That's why we read it just before the confession. Some churches do that every week. They read the Ten Commandments just before the confession of sin because you hear the law, I don't know, did it work for you that way today? And you say, ooh, I do that. David, I think I'm going to be here. Is that okay? So the law can be a mirror that shows us our dirty face. The second reason for the law is that the law restrains evil. Though it can't change our hearts, it can certainly keep us in line when we are afraid of Miss Hirschberger or some other kind of punishment. I obeyed her. I did my homework out of fear. It's true. It kept me in line. I stopped at stoplights because I don't want to get a ticket. Forbidding murder, theft, adultery, the law keeps society in line if we keep it. And the third and the highest use of the law is that it shows us what's pleasing to God. I mean, God didn't stop caring about murdering, murder and theft and envy and lying, did he? He still cares about those things. So if we die to the law, we are great, so grateful to God that he has saved us, that he has justified us, that we want to please him. We want to do what is his way. The law tells us what that is. It shows us how we can please him. You could say that, as Jeremiah said in the Old Testament, that he is writing his law on our hearts so that it can be integrated into our lives and become part of us, so that it becomes the way that we live, not because we think that it is going to make us right, but because we're so grateful to God that we want to do what makes him happy. Paul calls it bearing good fruit, and it's possible not only because of the law, but because of God's spirit that is within us. So God does by his spirit what the law and what we could never do on our own. May we be people who are so shaped by God's word and God's spirit that his law really is transforming our hearts and that we are people who are eager to bear fruit. Lord, we confess the ways of obedience raises resistance in our hearts. Thank you that you put your spirit within us, that you write your law on our hearts. So work in us. Transform us to your ways. For we love you, and we want to honor you and please you in all that we do. Amen. Let us bring to the Lord our morning offering. Be thou my vision, O Lord.
Church, will you stand and sing that verse one with us? Together. Be thou my vision. God of grace and love, we are the recipients of so many blessings. Our hearts are filled with such gratitude. We thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of your law, which has become a light upon our path that illumines the darkness of our world and which allows us to live in the identity which you have given to us. 
It is in response to your grace that we with grateful hearts this morning bring these gifts and present them to you for the work of your kingdom through your church. We thank you for this church, for the spirit of generosity that is within it. We pray that you will take our giving and multiply our gifts even as you multiplied the fish and the loaves and feed the hungry, bless those who are broken, heal those who are wounded, bring justice and righteousness into our world. We offer ourselves in the totality of our being unto you. Be thou our vision. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our closing hymn is May the Mind of Christ My Savior. You'll find it in your hymnal. It's hymn number 390. So this week, would you take the uh, experiment of Martin Luther? Would you consider taking one of the commandments each day and meditating on it through the day? We say we meditate on the law of the Lord and delight in it. Try it with one of them. See how that goes through your day. See in the places in which maybe you see your dirty face when you are trying to think about that law and the ways in which God wants to be honored by you through you living that law. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen.